You can't read the Bible and not have questions. This week on The Land and the Book, Michael Rydelnik joins us for 50 most important Bible questions. They are the very questions that stump many of us, but as you listen, you'll find your faith fortified. Plus, we'll equip you with practical tips on how to share your faith. So with that, we welcome you to The Land and the Book, the program that makes you feel like you've traveled to the Holy Land. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer, and I'm John Geiger. And John, we've got big news today. That's right. Last week, we announced a book blast, giving away a copy of Israel on High Alert, 40 Questions About Islam, and a Joshua Commentary. And uh, we asked our listeners, Charlie, to email a link to our Land in the Book podcast to three friends. And now it's time to announce our winner, Charlie. Right. Our winner today is Pastor William Mayhew from Hopewell Junction, New York. Uh, Actually, Pastor Mayhew wrote the following. The land in the book is a regular part of my routine for tracking the Lord's working in relation to his promises. I've shared your program with 60 plus people in my critical thinking email list. How exciting to know that although normal may not be coming back, Jesus is. Thanks for the insights and inspiration. Well, that's a great comment from that pastor, and we're glad that he won those three books in our book blast. Thank you to everybody who sent in an email. Appreciate your sharing us with your friends. That podcast is a great tool to do that. That said, let's get to our current events for the week. Last Sunday, Israel once again opened its doors to tourists, and yet, even as it did, the number of COVID cases soared to record heights. What's the logic behind Israel's decision, and will the doors stay open, Charlie, or could Israel yet again close its borders. Yeah, just a few weeks ago, Israel's Ministry of Finance told those working in the tourism industry to find new jobs because tourism, at least as it had existed, was dead. But now to quote the words of Mark Twain, it looks like those reports of its death were greatly exaggerated. Uh, They have opened their doors and they've done so in spite of the impact of COVID on the country, which seems greater than ever. Right now, 2 million Israelis, more than 20% of the population, are expected to be infected within the next week or so. Now, that might sound crazy, but there is some logic behind the decision. First, Israeli doctors and scientists believe their country is following the same trajectory as South Africa. The Omicron variety of COVID is quite infectious, but apparently less severe. They expect the meteoric rise in infections to peak in the next few weeks, followed by a very rapid decline in cases. And second, the danger is no longer visitors bringing COVID into the country, which is why they closed down before. The virus is already there, so it doesn't make sense to harm a large part of the economy by trying to keep tourists out. Uh, The tourists need to be fully vaccinated, take a PCR test before flying, another immediately on arrival, and then the group remains in their own pod or travel bubble during their time in Israel. They're COVID-free on arrival and the danger of contracting the disease or passing it on to other Israelis is minimal. Mm. The other part of the question, though, you asked, John, it's harder to answer. Uh, Will the country stay open? Right now, they're saying they plan to do so. I think they're really trying to avoid repeating that cycle of starting and then stopping since it caused so many trips to cancel. But one thing we've learned during the last two years of this pandemic is to never say never. Should a more lethal version of COVID appear? Well, it's entirely possible that Israel and the rest of the world could once again close its borders. But barring something like that, I believe Israel is going to do everything possible to keep its borders open to tourists. Now, I'm scheduled to head back in a month, and I have three other trips from March through early May. So, Lord willing, I hope to travel with all four of those groups to the land. 
For the past several weeks, fighting has raged in Kazakhstan with hundreds of protesters and police wounded or killed and thousands arrested. Most people struggle to find Kazakhstan on a map, and the riots generated relatively little press coverage. Help us understand what's been going on and why it's so significant. Uh, Kazakhstan extends north and east from the northern tip of the Caspian Sea. It actually borders Russia and China. Uh, It was the last of the former Soviet republics to declare its independence, and the government that was formed remained highly authoritarian. Uh, The recent rioting was in response to the government's decision to raise fuel prices, but there's more to the story. The country of Kazakhstan is 70% Muslim, and there's concern within the leadership that this large population could threaten their hold on power. The president authorized the nation's security forces to fire without warning on the protesters, and a Russian-led so-called peacekeeping force entered the country to help restore order. Now, in addition, China, Turkey, and Iran have all voiced their support for the current leadership. There are at least two reasons why these countries are so interested in helping the current regime stay in power. First, they do have economic interests in Kazakhstan that they want to protect. Transportation routes from China to Europe and elsewhere, part of its Belt and Road Initiative, run through Kazakhstan. And both Russia and China are two of Kazakhstan's main trading partners. But second, these countries are interested in putting down any threatened rebellion in Kazakhstan because of what they perceive to be a threat to their own authoritative governments. Russia, China, Turkey, and Iran all have very authoritative regimes. Their fear is that the failure of a similar style government in the immediate area could embolden groups within their own countries to push for change. And that's something they'll do everything possible to keep from happening. You're listening to The Land and the Book with Old Testament scholar, Middle East expert, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, working our way through a list we are of current event stories you need to know about. Archaeologists announced they had dug up the remains of a 3,500-year-old tsunami victim in Turkey. Apart from the age of the skeleton, what's the importance of this discovery for those of us who believe in the Bible? Well, let me start by saying it doesn't have anything to do with Noah, the ark, or a worldwide flood. Uh, This tsunami occurred about 500 years after the time of Abraham and long after the time of Noah. Uh, The excavation took place near the area of modern-day Izmir, uh, the biblical city of Smyrna. An ash layer had been uncovered, and the archaeologists were exploring to see if the ash was from the eruption of Thera on the island of Santorini. Uh, During the excavation, the archaeologists uncovered these human remains among the tsunami deposit just below that layer of ash. The excavation helps demonstrate the significance of this eruption at Santorini on biblical events. Uh, The eruption not only caused a tsunami that wiped out towns along the coast of both modern-day Turkey and many of the islands in the Aegean, uh, the ejection of the ash and sulfur also altered the climate in the Middle East for years, impacting civilizations far beyond the initial point of eruption. Uh, That climate change forced groups like the Philistines to migrate in search of more habitable land. Uh, The Bible says the Philistines came from beyond Crete, which is less than 100 miles south of Santorini. In other words, the appearance of the Philistines on the promised land could be part of the mass migration of people brought about by the climate change generated from this eruption. Uh, Truly an amazing event that had long-lasting implications for the Middle East, and God was behind it all. Well, finally, an Israeli firm has announced plans to build the country's first green hydrogen project. What's the purpose for the hydrogen, and why are they classifying the project as green? 
Well, in many ways, hydrogen could be the ultimate green fuel for transportation and industry. Uh, When hydrogen is burned, it combines with oxygen to form water vapor. You know, we remember from high school the formula for water, H2O, Mm -hmm. two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. Uh, Imagine engines that generate no carbon monoxide or other pollutants. Well, that's the ultimate goal. But that goal has several obstacles in the way. Uh, First, the amount of energy required to separate water into hydrogen and oxygen is greater than the energy produced when the hydrogen is burned. And then there are problems associated with storing and using hydrogen as fuel. Now, an Israeli firm believes it's developed an innovative way to overcome these problems. They've won a grant to build a facility in the south of Israel that will use the sun to generate 400 kilowatts of photovoltaic power, which they will then use to produce the hydrogen. It takes more energy to produce the hydrogen than the hydrogen itself will generate, but the sun provides that extra energy without cost. The process they'll use to generate the hydrogen uses a new technology that's safe, inexpensive, and highly efficient. Uh, They then plan to sell the hydrogen to large energy consumers in Israel, like heavy industry, which would otherwise use electricity produced by coal or natural gas. You know, John, someday soon, hydrogen could become a safe, clean, and plentiful fuel for industry in Israel, uh, thanks to the creative use of these combined technologies. And that's a look at current events. Charlie, there are people who are new to the program. Can you give us an overview of what they can expect? We've just been through segment one. That's our look at current events. We've got three more segments, though, including our conversation next with Michael Rydelnik. What's the program like? Oh, John, it's, it is a mini trip to Israel every time. Uh, the second part, as you said, is a conversation with someone connected with the Middle East or Israel or the Bible, like Michael Rydelnik. Uh, we then get to our third segment, which is a Q&A time. You know, when people travel to Israel, it raises questions. And any questions people might have about the Bible, Israel, the Middle East, uh, they can write in with those questions and we'll provide an answer. And then the final segment is where we take people to a spot in Israel. We open up the Bible and we literally take the land and the book and join them together in a way that hopefully makes a difference in their lives. And for somebody who's been listening for a long time, but is unaware, somehow we have a podcast. Talk about its benefit and how they could use it. Yeah, the podcast, the the real benefit to it is that you can listen to the land and the book again, or you can listen anytime that fits your schedule. All you need to do is go to thelandandthebook.org, and uh, you can get the podcast there. A great tool that you can use to share this program with your friends as well. Thanks, Charlie. Well, you can't read the Bible and not have questions, but let's get some answers next with Dr. Michael Rydelnik on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to segment two of the program we call The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. And by the way, that book we refer to is nothing less than the Holy Bible, the Holy Bible. We read it, we study it, but sometimes we're puzzled by it. We've got questions. And that's why we devote an entire segment of this program every week to having Charlie Dyer answer your questions. But because you are so curious, well, we thought it would be great during this segment to connect with another great Bible answer guy. We'll look at some of the 50 most important Bible questions after this quick thought on reaching out to Jewish friends and neighbors. So I've noticed in the past that uh, when I try to bring up Messiah Yeshua with a Jewish friend, invariably, the conversation comes to a screeching halt. It's not like there's an openness toward 
further discussion, even when there's a friendship that pre-exists. What's going on? Let me ask Justin Crone of Chosen People Ministries. What's going on? Yeah, John, I think we need to understand that it's been drilled into the hearts and minds of Jewish people uh, for decades, for centuries, that Jesus is not for Jews. And if a Jewish person were to embrace Jesus as their Messiah, they're going to be rejected by their family, by their closest friends. And so when they weigh the cost, their their immediate thought is, nope, I'm not going to lose those friendships. I'm not going to lose my respect, if you will, Mm -hmm. within my community. My standing. And my standing. And so it's just an immediate reaction of, nope, not interested, don't want to go there. I don't want to deal with that pain or that struggle that might come as a result of even considering that Jesus might be the Messiah. So what's a reasonable response to that? Well, Justin and I will have to pick that up in a conversation in the future. Justin Crone is with Chosen People Ministries and joins us today on The Land and the Book. Dr. Michael Rydelnik is professor of Jewish studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute and the host slash Bible teacher on Open Line, a live weekly broadcast that answers listener Bible questions the son of Holocaust survivors. He was raised in an observant Jewish home in Brooklyn, New York, or is that New York? As a a high school student, Michael became a follower of Jesus the Messiah and began teaching the Bible almost immediately. He's the author of several books, including 50 Most Important Bible Questions from Moody Publishers. He and his wife, Eva, live in Chicago. I consider him a kind friend who never lacks for a smile. Hey, welcome back to The Land and the Book, Michael. So great to be with you. I love how you talk. (laughs) (laughs) You taught me everything I know. (laughs) Yeah. My sisters always say to me, Michael, what's wrong with you? You talk so funny because I don't have that thick New York accent. Well, we do not have time to train you how to speak with that accent or to go through all Mm -hmm. of the 50 most important Bible questions that are addressed in this book, but we are going to address some of them. And let's jump in, I say, at the deep end of the pool, Michael. By asking, ready for this, why does God allow bad things to happen? I mean, why? Well, I think anyone that thinks they have an answer for that question, uh, a total, complete, and everyone's going to say, oh, that feels so good, I now understand, uh, they're mistaken. There are mysterious aspects of this world. But I would start by saying God does things not well, but the best that they can be done. His creation is a creation with excellence. And to start with, God wouldn't make a world that was just good. He wants to make the best of all possible worlds. And the best of all possible worlds isn't a world in which there's been no evil, but a world in which evil has been overcome. Mm. And so the creation of the world, that's why the whole creation is longing for its redemption, because the world, when the new creation is finally built, uh, when God makes the new heavens and the new earth, that will be a world in which evil has been completely overcome, and it'll be far better than anything else. Well, why is that? Because the fact that we have evil shows us virtues that we would never understand without evil. So, for example, sacrifice and bravery wouldn't exist Hmm. were it not for evil existing. The soldier who jumps on a grenade to save his platoon would not be able to do that were it not for the evil of war. And so Romans 8 is saying that's why the whole creation is longing for that. But in the meantime, we have the value of understanding virtues like faith, hope, love, courage, sacrifice uh, that we would not see were there no evil. So 
Uh, that's one of the factors. But, you know, a lot of times people want to blame God for evil, mm-hmm. but it's really humanity. I mean, people have often asked me as a son of Holocaust survivors, where was God when the six million died? And I always say God is always asking this question, where was humanity when the six million died? What were they doing? Many were perpetrators. Others were bystanders. There is an accountability that people have. And the reason God made people with this capacity for evil is he wanted people who could love him and be faithful to him. And without this capacity for evil, we'd be automatons. There would be no real relationship. We would be like a programmed computer. And so those are some of the factors. I don't think I've got the final word on it, but I do know this. I know the final word on it. I know Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I love what Dorothy Sayer said about the problem of evil, that whatever else can be said about the problem of evil, this much must be understood. God took his own medicine. Dr. Michael Rydelnik is host of Open Line and has written the Moody Publishers book, 50 Most Important Bible Questions. And since, Michael, you and I are in the deep end of the pool, here's another. Okay. How, <laughs> how, how can you explain the Trinity? I wish I could. That's how the book uh, question in the book says, can you give a simple explanation of the Trinity? And I said, I wish I could, but I can't. Uh, here's what I know about the triune nature of God. It is taught clearly in the Bible. Even though the word isn't used in the Bible, the word Trinity, the Bible clearly teaches that God the Father is God, God the Son is God, Mm -hmm. and God the Holy Spirit is God. Now, of course, I think you might need the book to see all that it says. Now, here's one other factor that the Bible says Besides saying that God the Father is God, God the Son is God, God the Holy Spirit is God, but also that God is one. And it's in Deuteronomy 6.4, it's the watchword of Israel, mm-hmm. hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But it's not just in the Old Testament. It's not like the New Testament contradicts the Old. Uh, in Ephesians 4.4, 4, there is one Lord, one God and Father of all. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Uh, James says, you believe God is one, you do well. James 2, 19. So the New Testament teaches that God is one, and yet God has some aspect of threeness all at the same time. And so how do I deal with that? I believe it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I would say that there have been some explanations, and of course, one of the explanations that the church fathers came up with is that God has one essence and three persons. That seems to be a great explanation, a theological explanation. People ask for illustrations. Not sure that I can do that. I like Dr. Goldberg, my professor at Moody. He used to call it the mystery nature of God, and there are sometimes there are things about God that are mysterious, incomprehensible, And we believe them. They're beyond the limits of our ability to understand, and so we accept it. We're talking with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, professor of Jewish studies at Moody Bible Institute and author of the Moody Publishers' freshly released 50 Most Important Bible Questions. And this next question is of intense interest. In fact, within the last hour or so, I I, I read from someone who does not believe in eternal security. So the question is, can I lose my salvation? Well... There are people who think that, and they love the Lord, and it's. Uh, I just feel like we need to take the plain teaching of the Bible. Uh, this is, by the way, on Open Line, the radio program that I host, probably the most 
common question that I get. And I think the plain teaching of the Bible is that we are secure once we know Jesus. And I think just for the sake of our discussion here, John, I want to run right to John 6, maybe because it has the same name as you, uh, John <laughs> six thirty-seven through 40. Uh, that's one of my favorite passages. There the Lord Jesus says, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and I will certainly never cast him out. So that means when we come to him, Jesus will receive us. That's really a cool thing. But the most important part is the next step in this. The Lord Jesus says, I have come not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus always does the Father's will. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me. So what is the Lord Jesus saying? If you come to me, I'll receive you. And if I receive you, I will keep you because that's the Father's will. If the Lord Jesus could lose you or me or any one of us once we know him, Mm -hmm. well, that means he's not doing the Father's will, and he's not who he claimed to be. Jesus staked his entire identity of always doing the Father's will on his ability to keep us safe and secure and in his grip, as he says in John 10. So Everyone that's worried about losing their salvation, if you've trusted Jesus, you believe he died for you and rose again, you've put your trust in him, your sins are forgiven, and you are secure. And what we need to do is start focusing on obeying him rather than worrying about him losing us. Michael Rydelnik, you have been doing Open Line, a live broadcast every week for years now. I want to know, do you sense any trends in the questions you're getting. Any differences between questions people ask you today versus 10 years ago? Yes. You're the first to ask that question. That's a really great question. I have noticed a proliferation of questions alleging or finding alleged contradictions or problems or moral ethical problems in the law. And people are asking these because there's been a proliferation of atheistic websites that have gone through and through misunderstanding the scriptures, cite these as problematic with the Old Testament. And therefore, they attack the veracity of the Bible and the the truth of God by saying, look at this moral failure. This is a morally reprehensible book, the law of Moses. And so believers don't know how to answer those questions. Yet because of this proliferation of websites that advocate these ideas, as a result, they're calling me and saying, could you explain this passage like in Deuteronomy where it says that uh, uh, allegedly, I don't think it really teaches this, that a woman has to marry someone who raped her. And those are the kinds of questions I'm getting that I didn't used to get. There's no question, though, that America as a nation is becoming more biblically illiterate. Mm -hmm. What about evangelical Christians? What kind of a report card grade would you give American evangelicals for their biblical competence? I think that they're reading the Bible less and less, and surveys done by the American Bible Society confirm that, so that even evangelicals are saying they only read the Bible, younger evangelicals under 40 are saying things like they only read the Bible when they go to church, if they go to church. Hmm. Uh, Some of them are saying they only read the Bible three times a year at Christmas and uh, Easter and sometimes on Palm Sunday. And I, I see it as a college professor at Moody. I teach undergrads. uh, I teach Jewish studies and Bible. And one of the things I discover, I've discovered as I teach young people, usually between the ages of 18 and 22, that their knowledge of the Bible 
from their church experience is far less than it was when I started teaching 28 years ago. So it is, of course, their knowledge of everything is far less. Uh, my wife in a class recently mentioned the Alamo, and no one in the class knew what it was. Mm. So, yeah, but that is reflective also on their lack of knowledge of the scriptures, which is why what I say every week at the end of Open Line is keep reading the Bible, and we'll talk about it next week. Don't be afraid to read it. Read it. The best way to understand the Bible, I say the first rule of understanding the Bible is by if we read it. Okay, you've got 60 seconds. Outline a reading program, a reading priority list that you would pass on to someone who admittedly isn't really reading. I'd love to read the Bible holistically. And what I mean by that is whole big books and read them maybe in one sitting if you can, but read big books of the Bible. The Discipleship Journal has an excellent survey of of the Bible in a year. Secondly, I think everyone should be studying a Bible book more intensely. Mm. And so I would, for example, choose the book of Ephesians, read a chapter a day more carefully. And after six days, you will have read it completely. Take a break on Sunday, go to church. And then the following day, pick it up again and read it again and do that for a month and read it. Maybe even get some helps like the Moody Bible Commentary and do some more in-depth study of a book. And once you've done that for a month, move on to the next book that you want to study. I am right now going through the book of Ephesians in my own personal Bible study. So thank you for that reminder, that encouragement. Michael Rydelnik has written 50 most important Bible questions from Moody Publishers. We didn't get to all 50. We knew we wouldn't, but uh, you will as you pick up a copy. A link to the book and to Michael Rydelnik himself at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Well, Charlie Dyer is back to answer more questions next, right here. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us today at The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, promising you're in for a treat because it's always interesting hearing what other people are thinking, wondering about as they open their copy of the scriptures and say, hmm, why is that there? What does that mean? What is God thinking as he instructs us to, well, let's dig in. Charlie, you ready for today's questions? I'm ready, John. All right, we'll start with Troy's. He has a question about the raging debate on tithing, as he puts it. He says, on a program this morning, a preacher was adamant that the tithe remains in the church age, and 100% of it belongs to the church because the church is God-made, whereas all parachurch organizations are man-made. That's not the approach I take with my donations, he says. Can you advise on this? Yeah, I can't speak directly to what the pastor said since I didn't hear that message, but I can reaffirm what we've said before on this program. I don't see the tithe being repeated for the church today. Rather, I see God providing far more comprehensive standards for giving, especially in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. He says giving's to be proportionate, that those with more are expected to give more, and giving's to be done cheerfully, not grudgingly. While supporting the ministry of the local church is a vital part of giving, I don't believe it's to be done to the exclusion of other giving. In 1st Corinthians, for example, the collection being taken up by Paul was for the saints in Jerusalem, not for the local church in Corinth. The New Testament also speaks of supporting widows and orphans and others in need. Paul talked about churches and individuals uh, who supported him in his ministry. Uh, My point here is that I believe God does intend for us to support the local church, 
But at the same time, I believe God can direct us to support other believers and ministries as he brings them across our path. Uh, We might not receive an IRS tax deduction for some of those gifts, but we don't give simply to lower our taxes. We give to support God's work. Now, don't neglect supporting your local church. But at the same time, don't feel guilty should God direct you to support a specific mission or ministry that you believe is making an impact for Christ. And don't hesitate to provide material support for other believers who have a genuine need. All of these are a part of our service and our giving for the cause of Christ. Charlie, I don't want to be the ultimate cynic, and I'm certainly nobody's judge, but it seems to me that the question is very likely often asked out of a hidden secret desire to give less. In other words, you know, we don't have to tithe, so therefore we can give less. We don't have to give that 10%. I don't get that impression anywhere in the New Testament. Your thoughts? No, that's exactly right. The, the, the widow gave her two mites, and that was everything she had. That was 100% giving. I think in this case, uh, the listener's real problem is that here's a ministry telling people only to give to the local church, and yet the ministry itself is being supported by gifts given to the ministry, not to the church. Yeah. All right, let's go to Ronald's question. Interesting one. What did David do with the head of Goliath? David buried the head of Goliath on a hill, which came to be known as Golgotha, and the name was supposedly derived from the names of Goliath and Gath, the same hill on which Jesus was crucified. What do you think? Yeah, in 1 Samuel 17, 54, we're told that David took Goliath's head to Jerusalem. Now, that's likely a statement that explains what happened after the fact. Uh, That is, David hadn't yet conquered Jerusalem when he killed Goliath, but By the time 1 Samuel was compiled, late in David's life or slightly after he died, David had conquered Jerusalem, made it his capital, and had taken Goliath's head, or more likely his skull there, as a rather gruesome trophy of war. Now, unfortunately, I don't believe there's a connection between the name Goliath and Golgotha. A Golgotha is simply the Aramaic word for skull. Now, some believe the site might have been given the name because it had the rough shape of a skull. Uh, when talking about Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, though, the writer doesn't use the Aramaic word Golgotha. He rather uses the Hebrew word rosh, which is the normal Hebrew word for head. So there's no evidence that the words Goliath and Gath were in any way connected to the Aramaic word for skull. Thanks for that question, Ronald. By the way, he listens on WPGM in Danville, Pennsylvania. Love knowing where you're listening, by the way, to The Land and the Book. Coming to you from Moody Radio with our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. A question from Lois, who listens most Saturday afternoons. She notes your mentions in Amazing Israel uh, of health uh, discoveries. She wants to know, how can I learn of other medical breakthroughs, especially vision-related, more specifically, peripheral vision loss? Yeah, and I'm not aware of any single source that can focus only on medical advances related to sight, but here are some links that you and other listeners might find helpful. Israel 21C, that is the word Israel, and then write the numbers 21 and then the letter C. Uh, That's a site that gathers news related to what's happening in terms of innovation in Israel. Uh, If you scroll to the very bottom of the page, you'll see a list of sections that allow you to separate the stories into categories, and one category is health, so that'd be a good place to keep checking. If you Google the Times of Israel, well, that's a good news source that can be very helpful. And near the top of their page is a section called Startup Israel. I just click on that tab. It focuses on technological developments, including medical advances, and occasionally they'll have articles on medical advances related to site. Uh, A third possibility is the Jerusalem Post. It's also a news site 
that can have articles you might find helpful. And near the very top of the page, look for the section labeled health and wellness. Now, I'd encourage you to go to those sites and and check them regularly, maybe on a weekly basis. It might take some time until an article related to uh, peripheral vision loss would appear, but when it does, they'll usually provide links within the article that will allow you to find additional information. Tim writes, the Bible says that the Israelites were in Egypt 430 years. Do you calculate the 430 starting with Abraham or with Joseph? What do you believe are the starting and ending dates of these 430 years? Do you believe Israel was in slavery in Egypt for 430 years? It would appear to me that the 430 years started following Genesis and ended with Moses leading the Israelites out at the Exodus. What do you think? Well, yeah, and I take the uh, Genesis 15 passage to be a, a general statement. It's, it's viewed as a round number, if you will. Uh, uh, it's similar to the land promise God made in verse 18, where he said, you're going to have the land from the river of Egypt, the Nile, to the river Euphrates. But in Numbers 34 and in Ezekiel 47, God takes those general boundaries and makes them specific. So the 400 years that's mentioned in Genesis is a general number, and then it's made more exact in Exodus and Acts. Uh, in Genesis 15, God said three things about Abraham's descendants. He said, they'll be strangers in the land that's that's promised to them, that's Egypt. They'd be enslaved and oppressed, and they'll be there 400 years. But does that third statement uh, refer to how long they'd be in Egypt or how long they'd be enslaved? And I think we know they were not oppressed when they first went to Egypt since Joseph was second in line to Pharaoh. So the general time frame of 400 years refers to the overall length of time they were in Egypt, not to the specific length of time they were enslaved. Now, in Acts 7, Stephen seems to indicate the oppression of the Israelites started toward the end of their time in Egypt. In fact, he says, But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. So it sounds like the Pharaoh who arose did so as the time of promise was drawing near. I can't say for sure, but that seems to put the enslavement more toward the end of the time rather than immediately after Joseph. We know the Exodus took place in 1446 BC, around there. Well, so a 430-year sojourn in Egypt would make the start of the time around 1876 BC, and that corresponds to the time when Jacob and his family moved to Egypt. Uh, Genesis 15 and these other passages don't say Israel would be mistreated for 400 or more years, uh, simply that they would live in a land not their own for that time and then be mistreated. So I take the 430 years to refer to the total length of time they're in Egypt, not the time of their mistreatment. And that seems to harmonize with the data we have both in the book of Genesis and in the book of Exodus and with the information in the book of Acts. Catherine takes us to John 8.33, a bit of a showdown between Jesus and some religious leaders. They say, we are Abraham's seed and we were never in bondage to any man. How do you say you shall be made free? Yet all throughout their history, they were in bondage many times to many different nations and were actually in bondage at that time. So how and why would they say we were never in bondage? By the way, uh, Catherine listens on KHCB in Houston. Yeah, and I believe the statement, Catherine, reflects a sense of self-delusion on on the part of these Jewish leaders. You know, when they said, we have never yet been enslaved to anyone, well, they were technically wrong on three counts. Uh, First, the Jewish people had been oppressed and enslaved by the Egyptians at the time of the Exodus, so the entire nation had been enslaved. And, And second, Even in Jesus' day, as you noted, the Jewish people were under the harsh rule and control of Rome. So in short, they were hardly free as they were claiming. But in addition, third, even more significantly, 
They were in bondage to sin, something Jesus had already described in verse 24. In their effort to justify themselves, they were actually denying the obvious and showing how spiritually blind they really were. Quick question from Renate, who takes us to Acts 7 and the stoning of Stephen. Why is it that Stephen's words are put into his mouth while the stones are being thrown at him, when those words about seeing heaven open, seeing Jesus, were the very trigger for the stoning in the first place? Yeah, I start by remembering Luke got his information likely from Paul, who was there at the time. Remember, as Saul, he witnessed the whole event. Now, in gnashing their teeth, I think they were clenching their jaws as their anger inside them swelled. But then when Stephen said he saw Jesus, that pot boiled over. They covered their ears, rushed in, dragged him out to be stoned. And that all likely happened just in a matter of seconds. And even as he's dying, Stephen's displaying the very character of Christ. And I suspect those were the words that were some of the goads used by Jesus to push Saul, Paul, toward faith. Thanks for your questions here at The Land and the Book. We're looking forward to Charlie's devotional. You don't want to miss it. It's next. Hi, welcome back to The Land and the Book for our fourth and final segment. I'm John Geiger asking, what's your favorite soup? Uh, Is it chicken noodle? You know, one of my favorites is beef and barley. And I love the flavor that you get from those two ingredients mixing together, beef and barley. Did you know that barley has a central role in Scripture? You're about to find out in Charlie's devotional coming up. First, though, listen to this Holy Land experience. This is Mike Kellogg. I'd like to tell you about my Holy Land experience. I remember going to the River Jordan and actually being a part of the pastors who baptized people there, people who had never been baptized by immersion before. This wasn't going to be a make-believe kind of thing. These were people who had made professions of faith in Christ and never experienced what it meant to go under the waters. And as they did that and they came up, They were just thrilled. We explained to them that baptism doesn't save anyone, but it is a great picture. And just think, this place is the place that Jesus Christ baptized people. It was a wonderful experience. To me, one of the highlights of the trip was climbing up that incline, and it was quite steep, and looking down on the Sea of Galilee, one of the most beautiful beautiful scenes that I have ever experienced in my life. I haven't done a lot of traveling, but I tell you, it meant so much to me the first time, and then the second time I went to Israel, it was even more magnificent. When we think of the nation of Israel, we typically use that phrase, a land flowing with milk and honey. But what about barley? Charlie, what are your thoughts about barley? In Deuteronomy 8, Moses summarized the bounty of the land into which Israel was about to enter. He said it was a land of wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. This week's journey takes us to Bethlehem to look at the role barley played in changing the course of Israel's history. While a field of barley looks similar to a field of wheat, the two plants are quite distinct, and each played an important role in Israel's history. Barley thrived in the warmer, drier climate of the Middle East, and it ripened earlier than wheat. Barley was harvested around the time of Passover, while wheat was harvested around the time of Pentecost. Historically, wheat was the more preferred food grain. 
In 2 Kings 7.1, Elisha announced the dramatic end of a siege by crying out, About this time tomorrow, a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel. In Revelation 6.6, the Apostle John described a still future time of famine when a day's wages will buy a quart of wheat, or three quarts of barley. In both passages, barley could be purchased for one-third to one-half the price of wheat. The lower price for barley reflects its more humble nature. However, barley was still a useful grain. When Jesus fed the 5,000, John 6, 9 says he did so using a young lad's five barley loaves. But why grow barley if wheat was the preferred cereal grain? The answer might be less obvious to those of us living in a modern society where we go to the grocery store to buy our food, but it was very obvious to those growing their own. They grew both crops because of the uncertainty of the climate. If the winter rains were below normal, the wheat harvest might fail. But the barley harvest just might survive since it required less moisture. Common sense, born from years of struggle, taught the farmers to diversify, and barley was a good insurance policy against starvation. And that's why we're standing just outside Bethlehem today. After several years of drought, the fields of grain are once again turning a golden color. Bethlehem, the house of bread, is about to live up to its name one more time. It's early spring, about the time of Passover. The number of fields sown in barley is higher than normal. It seems the farmers planted less wheat after years of drought caused that crop to fail so many times. Barley might be more humble, but better to have some barley than no wheat. It's the time of the judges, the time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The country seemed to be in self-destruct mode with natural disasters competing with foreign enemies to see which could cause the greatest sense of national malaise. But the dark days were about to end as a young widow cautiously makes her way along a dirt path leading to a nearby barley field. The widow is Ruth, and the field belongs to a man named Boaz. As a foreigner and a widow, Ruth had few illusions about what the future held. But she'd made a commitment to her mother-in-law, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. And Ruth intended to keep her promise. Her only hope for survival was to follow the reapers in the field and pick up the few stalks of grain that fell from their hands in addition to those left standing in the corners of the field. She didn't know what the future held, but she would do her best to keep her vow to Naomi. Ruth's sense of faithfulness and commitment was matched by the owner of the field she had seemingly chosen at random. When Boaz learned of her identity and of her faithfulness to Naomi, he responded in kind, Do not glean in other fields. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Boaz had compassion for Ruth and Naomi, and he looked for ways to help meet their physical needs while also preserving their sense of dignity and worth. From providing water, food, and shelter while Ruth labored in the field, to having his own laborers become less efficient so Ruth would have more grain to gather, Boaz put the needs of others ahead of his own personal profit. For almost two months, Boaz did all he could to help Ruth and Naomi. The writer carefully records that Ruth stayed close by the fields of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. 
it became obvious to Naomi that Boaz was a man of compassion and honor. And more than that, he was also a near kinsman, a member of Naomi's extended family who was in a position to take care of Naomi and Ruth, if he so desired. While someone reading the story might assume it took Naomi some time to reach this conclusion, one detail in the story lets us know otherwise. Ruth might have continued gleaning in Boaz's fields until the end of the wheat harvest, but her encounter with Boaz in chapter 3 took place while he was winnowing barley at the threshing floor, and the barley harvest, including the winnowing process, took place before the wheat harvest. We all know how the story ends. Boaz affirms his commitment to Ruth and Naomi, and he receives the right from a nearer kinsman to buy back the land once owned by Naomi's husband. The nearer kinsman refused, because he would have also had to take Ruth as his wife, and he was unwilling to do so. Boaz marries Ruth, and we close the book smiling at the happy ending. But the story isn't over. The last few verses of the book of Ruth are really intended as the climax for the book. Ruth and Boaz had a son named Obed, and he eventually grew up and had a son named Jesse, who eventually grew up and had a son named David. The book began with the heartache and confusion of the time of the judges, but it ends with the birth of the king who would lead the nation in God's ways. And it all came about because one man and one woman were committed to being faithful and because of a barley harvest that brought them together. As we pull the last bits of straw off our clothes and scrape the mud from the bottom of our sandals, what lesson can we carry away from the barley fields outside Bethlehem? I'd like to suggest two. First, Never underestimate what God can do through the life of a single man or woman who is faithful. From a human perspective, the faith of Ruth and Boaz helped carry a nation from the time of the judges to the time of King David. Determine in your heart that you will remain a man or woman of faithfulness and integrity no matter what is happening around you. Second, in the midst of personal difficulties, always remember that God has a greater plan. In spite of famine and personal loss, Ruth stayed faithful. She had no idea God was using life's circumstances to prepare her to become the great-grandmother of King David. Or, as Matthew shares in his gospel, one of five special women singled out in the genealogy of Jesus. She was responsible to remain personally faithful through life's trials. God was responsible to work all things together for good in his eternal plan and the two intersected in a barley field in Bethlehem. You know, today's devotional is a terrific example of why we call this program The Land and the Book. Sure appreciate the way Charlie connects the two. And if you connect with us on this broadcast, why don't you let us know how God's using the program? Your email is welcome anytime at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. thelandandthebook at moody.edu. The website where you can always hear it all again is thelandandthebook.org. Our Facebook page also accessed at that website, thelandandthebook.org. Just look for that Facebook icon. Our team includes Charlie Dyer and Dan Anderson. I'm John Gager. Thanks for listening. See you back next week for another edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.